Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, this September hosting the virtual 21st running of Hoosiers Outrun Cancer, a 5K run-slash-walk supporting those in the community facing a cancer diagnosis. Registration and more at HoosiersOutrunCancer.org. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg from the WFIU-WTIU Newsroom. I'm co-hosting with Sarah Whitmire, the WFIU-WTIU News Bureau Chief today. We are continuing to do this show remotely based because of, of course, the coronavirus and COVID-19. Today, we're going to talk about um, that disease. We're going to do an update on COVID-19 and the spread in in the Monroe County community. We have four guests with us today, three of them with us before, uh, some on a number of occasions. We have Penny Cottle, who is the Monroe County Health Department Administrator, Dr. Tom Rasmalis, an MD with IU Health Southern Indiana Physicians, who specializes in infectious disease. Dr. Aaron Carroll is the Director of Surveillance and Mitigation for the COVID-19 pandemic at IU. And we're being joined today also by Maggie Mulligan, who's an Indiana University student, a sophomore studying recreational therapy, and she's a member of the Gamma Phi Beta sorority. You can follow us today by uh, checking us out on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can also send us questions there, and you can send us questions to the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And I have to say, we've had a lot of questions in the last um, week or so, we've had, you know, we've had over a thousand questions since we started taking them about the coronavirus. But in the last couple of weeks, we've gotten quite a few questions. And I want to start out with uh, trying to get an understanding of one, and that has to do with uh, the positivity rates. I guess I will start with Penny and then uh, Dr. Rasmalis and Dr. Carroll can join in. It seems as if, um, you know, the new positivity rates for that, that specify unique cases versus uh, all cases, that seems to have have sort of come into the spotlight recently. So can you define unique cases and which is the number that we should really be paying attention to? Penny? Certainly. Thanks for having me today. Um, It is confusing. And, you know, we want to look at data from all different perspectives. When we look at individuals, um, what what that can tell us is, you know, whether or not maybe multiple people are testing um, versus, you know, everybody getting one test. The thing about COVID-19 is that this isn't sort of a one and done. You test for it and you're, you're finished. You could be exposed later and test positive. So there's a place for all of the information. One of the things that looking at individuals only does is if someone tested, say, in the spring and they were positive and then they tested positive again, maybe they had a reinfection now, we, that new test would not be captured. So we, we don't want to rely just on those individual tests as well. The percent positivity Um, And when we look at that, especially on a seven-day rolling average, that gives us all of the tests that are done, all the negative tests, all the positive tests together, and then how many of all the tests that were done were positive to really give us that snapshot of what's going on in the past week. So that gives a little more weight um, to that, that piece of data. And the other physicians may be able to give some additional information and clarity um, around that. Yeah, let, let me follow up just to make sure that that I'm clear. I'm not actually. I'm not sure that I am totally clear on it. So the number when we're talking about positivity rate, and we've been using that as a benchmark in several different ways. Are we talking about that? You know, all tests number. If if you want your positivity rate to to dip below five percent. Is that all tests or is that the unique tests? All tests. Um, 
you know, I mean, certainly, um, you know, unique individuals ha has its place. I'd like to see them all low, um, but certainly it's all the tests that were done for that particular week because I might, maybe I'm testing every, every week, but my negative tests two weeks ago were, were negative and they were part of that picture at that time. Um, my, if I test today and I'm positive, then that's a different picture and I'm still part of that kind of whole group. So the intent is to give us a, a snapshot of where we are and what's circulating currently in the community. Okay. And so I, in the, you know, in the opening, I think Sarah mentioned in the, in the opening to the show that um, the positivity rate had gone to 15% compared to three and a half percent just a couple of weeks ago, or maybe even a week ago, but that 15% is for the unique cases, correct? Yes. yes. Okay. So, um, and maybe Dr. Rismalis and Dr. Carroll can join us here, but so for an apples to apples comparison, what's been happening in, in Monroe County in terms of the rate? Um, this is uh, Tom Rosmalis. Um, uh, I would, for a moment, I would just uh, emphasize what uh, Penny just discussed. We need multiple measures to try and get a handle on what happens to be going on in the community. And to expand on that just a little bit, um, imagine this, that, for example, individuals who work at nursing homes are getting tested once a week, or some of them are getting tested twice a week. That can influence the numbers. Other people who may be tested positive, maybe unnecessarily, but are going back and testing again and again and again and seeing when they when their test might be negative. So you can see all this, all these tests then can confound the statistics. And so we need multiple measures to try and get a handle on what's really happening. And so that's why you see, you know, different things followed and different things tracked. Um, uh, from Monroe County, and I would certainly uh, you know, uh, ask uh, Penny and, and uh, Dr. Carroll at IU their impressions, but certainly we've seen uh, an increase in, in, in cases. We've seen an increase in cases back around July 4th. We've seen an increase in cases here more recently. Um, you know, it seems to correlate with, uh, with uh, uh, some of the uh, students coming back in town. And indeed, if you look at Monroe County's numbers, what is it? About 60% of our uh, cases are in individuals under age 29, in contrast to some of the surrounding counties. So I think that certainly plays a role. But, um, you know, there's a lot of other factors that go into it as well. Um, I think everyone's had a little bit of isolation fatigue and, and they've been a little bit more uh, active and out there. And I think that increases risks as well. Okay, so if I can just focus in on these numbers again. So, Dr. Rosmalis, what, what number, I mean, if, if just a, an individual is out there trying to gauge how well Monroe County is doing, is it this seven-day negativity rate percentage for all tests that people, that just the, the lay person can be paying the most attention to or should be paying the most attention to? Well, I would say yes. I think that's a good one to follow. Personally, you know, we all follow what is most valuable and important to us. Um, I'm, since I'm not strictly speaking involved in public health, but I involve, I'm more involved in taking care of patients. I follow, you know, what the hospital census is and how many people we have in the intensive care unit. Um, so everyone is following a little bit different number, but I think the percent positivity number is a good one to follow. Okay, and, and Penny, could you just tell us what that is right now? The today's positivity rate? Yes. Is that, was that the question? Yes. So those just popped up at, at noon. So today's uh, all tests uh, was 8.2%. Um, I think that people have have been watching and part of that going up. And it, we know that Indiana University is doing a wonderful job at, at really robust testing on, on campus and people affiliated with the university. And as numbers come in and different systems are put in place to merge that information, um, certainly the universities across the state, I think that there was some 
um, challenges uh, between uh, labs reporting and the state system getting those put in. That is being corrected and we saw some of that correction today. Um, I, I don't know what all of those labs were that, that they were encountering that with, but we did have conversations with the state uh, for a while, but certainly this week to really address that. And so I think that we'll continue to see some changes there, but it was 8.2% today. Okay. All right. Thank you. So Dr. Carroll, can you give us uh, your perspective, give us an overview of what you're seeing in the numbers as it pertains to the university? Yeah. I mean, positivity rate is as a metric, um, but to, to, to say that it's like the most important or the one that we should follow, it's important to understand that what's really important there is not just the, the numerator, but also the denominator. Um, because of course it's the number of cases and the number of tests. And what can really influence that is not just the number of cases, which is of course the number of infections, but also how many tests are you running? Um, and the positivity rate is gonna be very different in, in, in different populations. For most of Indiana, the positivity rate that we're looking at is of symptomatic or people we believe to be at high risk because the vast majority of people who are getting tests are being referred to a test by a physician uh, or who are concerned that they have been exposed and are therefore at higher risk and are running out to get a test on their own. That's most of the tests. So seeing a positivity rate of you know 8% there is you're saying, okay, that's in a high risk population. But what we're doing at IU, the vast majority of tests that I'm running are on asymptomatic people. Uh, we're doing somewhere between 10 and 15,000 tests a week on people who are not symptomatic. And you know, depending upon our populations, we're seeing very low. And most of our regional campuses, our positivity rate is zero. Um, at IUPUI, the positivity rate is significantly below 1%. Uh, in the Greek population, <laughs> you know, in week two, I think it was at 25%, which is horrifyingly high, but they're a very high risk population. Um, in, amongst the dormed population at Bloomington, on the other hand, it was low around 3%, um, which of course concerns us because that's a whole prevalence and 3% is still higher than we'd like to see. But there's a difference between being concerned about a prevalence of 3% or a positivity of 3% in a dorm population and saying, okay, 5% in, uh, Indiana would be great. Um, that's because we're thinking it's mostly symptomatic for Indiana, and I'm knowing it's almost entirely asymptomatic in the Bloomington dorm. So it, it's just important to know what we're testing. And, and Penny is right. There have been some difficulties in how our tests are being reported to the state, um, and that's partially because how the lab um, that we've been contracting with has been reporting it. It appears that they reported the positives much earlier than the negatives. But it's important to understand that globally, we're going to be driving the rate of Monroe County positivity rate down. Um, because again, we're doing so many tests in asymptomatic people that even when we're concerned, it's lower than 8%. Um, our testing rates overall have been significantly lower than 8% in mitigation testing. And so uh, as the number of cases may still be rising, the positivity rate could still be lowering because we're testing a different group of people, which makes just using the positivity rate problematic if you're only caring about one metric. Hey, I think I understand all that. So, oh, good. So, so, so Dr. Carroll, are there other, is the university measuring um, other large um, apartment complexes? I mean, do you, are you able to pinpoint any other hotspots among students? Because there is communal living in places off so, campus. Yep, we, we divide, the buckets we put people in for the most part are, um, are in each campus, employees, faculty, and staff. Um, we put buckets of off-campus students, buckets of on-campus students. And at Bloomington, we're also, we're also looking at Greek because that's been a significant predictor. Um, we are not yet looking at off-campus apartment buildings. Our, you know, our data on where off-campus students live is not precise enough or accurate enough to get that yet, although we're certainly working towards that. So I can tell you, for instance, that in, in Bloomington's campus, um, our dorm population uh, is sitting at a slightly lower positive positivity rate than our off-campus non-Greek housed population. Um, but our Greek off-campus students are significantly higher 
that our non-Greek off-campus students and our Greek TAUS students in general have been much higher than any other group. Uh, employees, faculty, and staff have been almost non-existent cases in that we've measured. And so it's, it's different. Can I tell you which you know, which apartment building off campus might have a higher population? No, not yet. Again, we're okay. working towards that level of precision, but we're monitoring all of these groups so that we can figure out where we need to focus in the future and determine what measures we might need to take to make things safer. All right. Uh, Maggie Mulligan is with us. Maggie's an Indiana University student, a sophomore studying recreational therapy, and she's a member of the Gamma Phi Beta sorority. So Maggie, is your sorority one of them that's been quarantined? Yes, my sorority just recently got on quarantine. Okay, so I guess I wanna ask you just sort of a general question. I mean, I think we've we've heard from a lot of people, uh, Dr. Carroll just mentioned, I mean, it, it would be really difficult, it seems to me, for a fraternity or a sorority to be able to have the ability to social distance and do the kinds of things necessary to keep everybody safe. So I guess my question is, you know, is, how possible is it for that kind of communal living, which is based on, you know, being, being social and being together as, you know, sisters or a fraternity as brothers, you know, how realistic is it that you can, you can stay, you can keep a number down in an organization like that? I mean, it's extremely unrealistic, but the issue is not that we're just a social group. The issue is that we're living in a house together where we share kitchens and bathrooms and living rooms together. And if we don't really have a choice, but to share these facilities together. I mean, when we, we have a risk of catching COVID when we go to the bathroom, cause we don't know who's been there previously or where they've been. Um, it's, it's pretty much the same as when you're living in your house back home. I mean, you share all the same utilities, you share the same rooms. It's just, even though we're living separately, sleeping separately, we have to leave our rooms eventually. I mean, we can't just stay in our rooms. So it's, it's very unrealistic and it's quite frankly, really challenging to social distance and to wear these masks and to keep up with studies on top of all of this. So what's, if you don't mind me asking, what's your life like there under quarantine? <laughs> well, it's, it's very unique. Um, <laughs> it's very, it's been very stressful. Um, I mean, my sisters and I, I mean, if you can imagine living in a small room, a room almost the size of a closet, and then being told that when we leave these rooms, we have to wear masks to go to the restroom, to the, to the living room, to even go outside for a little bit for some fresh air. It's extremely draining mentally and extremely draining just physically. Um, I mean, there's been, we've been told to live in these rooms and to, for a mental break to work out in our rooms. Um, but that's not possible with the space that we've been provided. And of course, each house is different. I can't speak for every house. Um, but my house specifically, it doesn't have that ample amount of room for us to move about and to feel any sense of freedom. So it's just been this constant like weight on our shoulders, this whole quarantine and COVID, just everything going on. So do you know, are you aware of what happens next? I mean, you'll, I assume the quarantine will be two weeks. How often are you being tested during that time or will you be tested at the end of the two weeks what could happen next the testing has been kind of random on our part we were originally told we'd be tested every week um that has changed it's been every after quarantine um next for us would be to see the positivity rates how they are affected within these next few weeks because you know if we have another positive case within the house we go back on to quarantine that's been the whole deal is that we could be in this constant cycle of being quarantined. And uh, right now my sorority is dealing with girls who are now moving out and trying to find off-campus housing because they just simply don't feel safe anymore within the house, which is, you know, has nothing to do with the house itself. It's just the COVID and how it's infested all of these houses as a whole. Um, so right now when these girls do choose to leave and to move off campus, they're going to start, using separate rooms for isolation and start moving girls around just to provide some, some more safety and some more isolation. Because right now, isolation is a really big problem within every sorority. It's getting people out of their rooms and getting them away from everyone else has been a huge issue. Um, so that's the next step is figuring out how to more properly isolate people within the houses without making them leave or go home. 
going to give our numbers again before I let Sarah, I know Sarah has a question, but uh, news at indianapublicmedia.org is how you can send us questions. And at Noon Edition is our Twitter handle. You can send us questions there too. Sarah? We keep getting a lot of questions in, but before we move to those, Maggie, I just want to ask, I mean, how did, how did you feel when IU first invited students back and now looking at it, what do you wish you had known? Yeah, so I'm out of state. Um, so I I was just dying to get back to Bloomington, to be back here again. Bloomington's my home. I mean, I love being here. I love studying here. I'm on the dance team here. So I have that as an extracurricular that I absolutely adore. So when we were invited back, of course, I jumped at the opportunity to come back. Um, and I felt safe knowing that the university would keep me in the know, test me regularly. And they told me that I would be safe within my sorority house as well, as long as we followed these guidelines. Um, and two weeks in, it's, I, I hate to say it, it's kind of blown up in my face a little bit. I just, I was kind of, I wasn't blindsided because I was very, very in the know about how, how horrible this virus and how vastly it progressed. And I just, I wish coming back to IU, there had been more protocols in place by the university itself. It felt very like it was kind of on the sorority's shoulders to figure it out. And although the university doesn't have any claim over the house, like it's all based on individual sororities, nationals and, you know, their, their rules, but you know, these are IU students within the houses that are getting sick. And I just feel like the university would take a little bit more responsibility in helping us with isolation. And, you know, they gave us the hotel was an option, but now the hotel is filled up and we can't use the dorm that's made for isolation. So it just felt like we've come to the point of no return. And now it feels like we have no choice but to either stay in this house and get infected or to go home and risk infecting family members or to spend more money and get off campus housing. It's just, I feel like when I came back to IU, I would have liked to know what the plan would have been at this point. I feel like I just did not know what would happen if I had come to this point that I am right now and I wouldn't know what to do. I wish the university had had a plan for this rapid increase of numbers of COVID within each house. I'm going to ask Dr. Carroll about that, but first I, I do want to ask you, Maggie, so how many of your uh, sorority sisters are actually sick? Well, uh, according to uh a statement released yesterday, actually, each house has identified how many members are exactly sick. And according to that, um, there is 43 members currently infected with COVID at Gamma Phi Beta, but they've all isolated quarantine. They're out of the house now. Okay. Um, Dr. Carroll, I just wanted to get your reaction to what Maggie sure. said about the university's uh, uh, responsibilities and also how well that they've prepared the students for this kind of eventuality. So, I think we've been very consistent. I mean, I've been involved in the planning from the restart committee since we were in March. And I think the restart committee determined pretty early that we could not see a way that fraternity and sororities um, could be safe for the reasons that we've just articulated. No blame, no anger. It's just impossible to imagine how to do communal living the way that they do and keep it safe. Um, but fraternities and sororities are off-campus housing and they wanted to open. And they are independent. And so um, we, we at that point said, look, if you're going to do this, we would give you the same recommendations that we give, you know, when we think about the dorms. De-densify massively, singles or doubles only. Um, significant numbers of bathrooms per uh, how many people would be there. You know, real complex levels of, of cleanliness. Uh, you know, real, you know, explaining to people that outside of your room, you need to be masked. So only your roommate uh, is the person you are not masked around. Everybody else, 100% masking. Um, not eating in the building, because eating is a significant source, especially communal eating, huge danger. Uh, and so not to do that. Uh, to, to then even talk about making sure that you have significant quarantine and isolation space set aside where people will be completely removed from everybody else that the risk of infection would not would not go up. Now, I've just laid out uh, a list of recommendations that are pretty much impossible to do and have a fraternity or sorority house, which is why we said we don't think this can be safe. 
Um, but fraternities and sororities moved ahead and came up with plans that they thought would be adequate. We, when asked, I said, I don't, you know, asked personally, I said, I don't actually think that that is what we said or that is enough. But again, fraternities and sororities exist as off-campus housing and manage themselves. Um, we can work with them with respect to academics, but they've taken uh, significant pride in being very independent organizations. And so we can make recommendations um, for, for those who live off campus and we're monitoring them. And we can uh, certainly control and make sure that our dormed populations meet the standards that I just said, but I cannot fix what is, is in the fraternities and sororities to make it what I just said. Now we tested them along with everybody else uh, because we wanted to monitor what was going on. And it, we did on arrival testing for all of them so that they would start at the same low levels of prevalence that the dorm populations would. And we even tested everybody off campus in Bloomington as well to start off on the best foot, but it raged almost instantly. Um, I'm not, I'm not again, this is not about blame. This is not about pointing a finger. Uh, it is just, I think, the way that the houses are set up, it's hard to imagine that they can meet uh, the, the criteria for which it was safe. Um, but again, fraternities and sororities made plans and decisions and, and moved forward with how, how they thought they could manage this safely. You know, the numbers of students who are infected in the fraternities and sororities right now would overwhelm Ashton. Um, it is not as if we have space set aside where that we even if we wanted to use it and we need to save that for the dorm population um, because we have housing contracts with them and we are uh, you know making sure and they're already you know filling up but there's literally not enough room um, to house everyone who is needs to be in isolation or quarantine from the houses at this point they would multiple times over uh, overwhelm our capacity that's how quickly the infections went and that's why you know we're, we're only in the third week of, of school right now but we've had multiple conversations and multiple you know discussions where we've advanced our recommendations quickly from this appears to be raging to this does not appear to be safe to this you know we need to quarantine whole houses because at this point everyone is a close contact of everyone else to we don't think that this is still we still are consistent in saying this is not appear to be safe um, and it appears that the plans that have been put in place are not adequate. Now, we're left with a series of unfortunately bad choices. It is not as if there's a magic button to push that, that can fix this. Um, we have tried to find other facilities where we could potentially house that many people in isolation, uh, but it's incredibly difficult. Um, and we're still finding that, that infections are spreading in the houses, even when we know all of this because it's incredibly hard, um, but you know we have to move forward as best we can. We're still trying to do everything we can to advise and help and and do this this as safely as possible, recognizing that there just aren't a lot of great options available. So we got a question, and this is for Penny. We we've been talking about sororities and fraternities being quarantined. And the question is, what is the difference between quarantine and isolation? Sure. Um, isolation is when you are ill. So if you have tested positive, uh, whether you're symptomatic or not, um, and I, with isolation, you are ill. And the isolation period is at least 10 days um, away from other people, uh, not mingling your, by yourself so that you are not posing a risk to transmit that infection to someone else. So it's 10 days plus you have to be 24 hours fever free at least without medication to reduce your fever and your, any symptoms that you have had have to be improving. So it's a minimum of 10 days for isolation. Uh, quarantine is, and the best way to say it is when you have been exposed, you may have been exposed, and you are waiting to see if you will become ill. And that period of time is 14 days. So again, you quarantine, uh, you want to not be interacting with others because the more you're interacting, if, if I'm in quarantine and I am interacting with my family, it does, again, doesn't matter where you live. If I'm 
um, interacting with my family and I become ill, now they are all close contacts and they have to, their quarantine time is now extended. Um, so it, it can be very, very difficult. And certainly isolation and quarantine are both difficult things. Um, doing it in any household can be difficult. Um, and certainly the more people that you have um, living together, the more difficult it, it becomes. And, you know, Maggie talked about sort of that emotional toll that, you know, your mental health and it, it is difficult. Um, absolutely. And it's part of why we want to intervene as, as early as we can. And so as, you know, tests, people are tested and they're positive and you get a certain number and you have to say, we need to intervene in this quickly um, so that we can stop that spread from just continually going on. All right, if you have a question or a comment, you can send it to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We're talking with, uh, that was Penny Caudell, uh, Caudell, who is the Monroe County Health Department Administrator, Dr. Tom Rasmalis uh, from IU Health, Southern Indiana Physicians and an Infectious Disease Specialist is with us. Dr. Aaron Carroll, Director of Surveillance and Mitigation for the COVID-19 pandemic at IU is with us. and. So is Maggie Mulligan, an Indiana University student, a sophomore studying recreational therapy, who is right now quarantined with the rest of her sorority at Gamma Phi Beta. Um, we did have another question that came in about um, that I think that uh, Penny, you and, and Dr. Rismalis might be able to address just about the counties, um, you know, the spike in, in the percentages, the spike in numbers in the county, and, you know, what short-term plan might there be to deal with that? Is there anything else other than, you know, what's been done so far? And I know you have a, you know, another meeting and a press um, availability in, in about a half an hour, but is there anything else that the county can do or, or will be doing to try to slow the spread? Well, I think that, very much of it, it from a county perspective is that we need everyone in our community to take their responsibility very seriously for protecting themselves and their family and their friends. And so I always feel like a broken record. We are coming into flu season. We talk about washing hands and, you know, cleaning and, and doing all those kinds of things. And, and it's true with COVID-19 as well. So I, my message is, is really the same. It's why we have a face covering requirement, uh, distancing. It's why we have uh, measures put in some of the retail establishments and um, those food establishments to, to wear face coverings, to seat people, uh, those kinds of things. What we really need, I, I feel, is are individuals to um, each do their part and I've said before, kind of a we, not me mentality. I did not come up with that, but I have latched onto it that we really have to think about what our actions are and how they impact others, because we're only going to really reduce the spread of this infection if we all work together to, to take all the precautions that we need to. Dr. Rismalis? Um, I would like to uh, say, um, a couple things. First, yes, you know, we've seen these increasing cases and it's worries, worrisome to all of us. The good news in this is, although we have seen an increase in hospitalizations, it has not been to the degree uh, that we saw, you know, back in April or would necessarily correlate with the number of uh, cases that we see statistically. And this may well simply be because a lot of these cases are in younger, healthier people who are for, will fortunately recover uh, uneventfully. Um, what I would say is, you know, we all have lapses. We just all need to focus a little bit better. Maybe we forget to wear a mask when we're around family or friends who we think they might be safe. Or maybe we go to a restaurant and we sit six feet apart, but that restaurant may have inadequate ventilation or ventilation patterns that move droplets around, or maybe we don't get tested for mild symptoms. 
or maybe some people are not absolutely 100% uh, with their quarantine. We can all do better in all of those type of activities. You know, it's not a surprise, I guess, from a medical standpoint, it's not a surprise that we are not 100% successful in altering the disease uh, with behavioral changes. I mean, we struggle with this, this all the time. How do we get people to be vaccinated against influenza? How do we control obesity and substance abuse and sexually transmitted diseases and smoking? We're just not 100%. But if we can all be a little bit better, if we can all wear that mask consistently and everywhere, um, you know, we can make a difference. I mean, it's been shown in other places around the world that the more vigorous we are in following the recommendations, the more control we can get on it. So I just would uh, be a voice to encourage people to just take it up a notch, one little bit more effort to try and get this under better control. Now, Dr. Carroll, you did say, I think uh, on a call earlier this week that you're not seeing any spread caused by what's going on in the classrooms. Is that correct? That is correct. I think, you know, we, we do rigorous case, uh, I'm sorry, contact tracing on all of our cases. Uh, and pretty much all of them um, are from activities outside of, of being in school. Um, our classes are designed so that um, not only is everyone universally masked, not only is ventilation great and we keep the things very clean and we're encouraging you know, hand sanitizing, but they're de-densified to a point where no one should be within six feet of another person even while they're seated. Lots of classes even have assigned seating so there's not bunching up. Uh, and professors, of course, significantly further out at the front, so that even if a case were to enter a classroom, no one should be a close contact. I mean, if no one, of course, is a close contact, then no one needs to quarantine, uh, even if they were in class with somebody who might have been infected. But uh, we've had no infections that we can trace that have occurred person to person in a classroom. All right. So on that issue of contact tracing, um, Penny or, or Dr. Ruth Mollis, have you seen from the contact tracing that you know of that's gone on in Monroe County, have, have there been any other events that you could point to that have um, you know, created issues? There haven't been any, any, there haven't really been any specific events that we've been able to identify. But I will say this, that even across the state, we, it is those social gatherings. It is mostly where people are gathering with their their family and friends that they consider, you know, well, it's just my family. It's, I, I'm safe. And it's what Dr. Ismalis was talking about. Uh, we have to be careful around everyone and, you know, think about who we might infect if it's us that's asymptomatic and has been infected. So certainly as we find places um, that may have multiple people, those are addressed. I mean, we know that, you know, some businesses have had multiple people maybe who have been infected, but not necessarily all at the same time or directly linked to one another. I'm not saying that there aren't any of those cases. There are, but in terms of being what we might call a true hotspot, we've really had very little of those. I, I am concerned, you know, with Labor Day weekend. I don't know how how people did, and so I'm concerned that we might see another spike. We've seen that. Um, after other holidays that has have occurred. So I'm hoping that people um, were very careful and that we won't see that, that spike. Contact tracing for COVID-19 is being handled because we're in a pandemic a little differently than we handle our other communicable diseases in the sense that the state brought on um, people to do contact tracing throughout the state to take some of the burden off local health departments. So we are still involved directly with them um, when there are uh, multiple cases, especially at certain um, locations, or if the state process is missing someone, they can't get a hold of someone, then our nurses step in and work on that. And certainly IU has stepped up and uh, brought in contact tracers to work 
on the people that they're testing and the student population. And that is a huge asset. Um, certainly when you have lots of positives, it, it can be very overwhelming and it can overwhelm uh, a system very quickly. And that will bounce from day to day on how difficult that may be. The state has started a marketing campaign called Answer the Call, uh, just to make sure that people are aware if they get the call from the state health department, and that may come to them as a text or an email or a phone call that we, it is very important to call that person back so that they can walk you through what you need to do and they can assess who those close contacts were. Have you been somewhere um, that may be uh, a location or place that we need to identify and do some closer uh, work in. So it's very important to follow up with those contact tracers, whether they're IU, whether they're state, or whether they're the local nurses. We've gotten several questions about IU's responsibility to students and to the community. And I, I guess I'd like Maggie to respond first. The, the one question I'm gonna ask is um, someone just said, IU opened implying safety for all students. What happens to help students not spread the virus? And if students do have the virus, is the university taking responsibility for their care and offering them support? Yeah, absolutely. I can't speak for obviously the whole student population, but speaking as someone in Greek life, um, you know, going back to what Dr. Trill said earlier, you know, we did follow those guidelines, these guidelines of if you get it, isolate, and you need to get out of the house for day hours right after. We followed all of these guidelines, and even with following those guidelines, obviously the virus is spreading. Now, the support that the Greek life has gotten from IU has been pretty minimal. Um, as Dr. Carroll said, the Greek life houses work as independent institutions. Um, so the problem we're seeing now is that we have girls that are testing positive in my sorority and they're going to home to suites, which is what IU told us to do. Um, but now, you know, that hotel is full. So really the support, miss <laughs> there is some support missing from IU um, for students that are testing positive on campus. And we're kind of being seen as one big statistic instead of being seen as individuals who need help and who need resources once they get sick and how to prevent that from spreading. I'd like to follow up with you, Maggie. I think, you know, when when things happen like, you know, over Labor Day weekend, very early, you know, that afternoon, two o'clock, there were social media posts of, of students uh, identified as probably without any proof identified as fraternities and sororities. So I'm not going to blame fraternities and sororities, but just students who were lashing together pontoon boats at the lake and they clearly want social distancing. And, and, you know, there's the, there's this uh, sort of drumbeat that says, well, the students just aren't taking this seriously. They aren't paying attention to this. And, and I'd just like to get your response to that. I mean, what, what do you see among you know, you're the people that you come in contact with and other students at IU about, you know, how seriously they're taking this and how, what kind of responsibility they feel for the greater community that they live in. Of course, I cannot speak for the population of students who have decided to turn their back on the virus and have decided to forego social distancing and wearing the mask. But what I can tell you is about the population of students that are hiding terrified in their rooms of this virus and they are not leaving their houses and they are not even thinking about going within six feet of anyone. I mean, there are girls that have escaped just to get away from their roommates, even though the roommates haven't even been exposed. They just want to avoid it altogether. I mean, really like these people that are gathering on pontoon boats and these people that are going out in public, yes, they can be identified as students. And yeah, maybe a lot of them are part of Greek life. But if we were going to talk about these gatherings, we also need to take into consideration all the people that aren't even affiliated with IU at these gatherings. I mean, have we really taken into consideration taking apart those groups of people and identifying them for who they are? I mean, I can say that when I drive through Kirkwood or like I see these large gatherings, I see a lot of, you know, people who aren't even in college. So I do not agree with these students who are gathering and who are forgoing all of these protocols that are put into place. But what I do think we should be focusing on instead is the population that is completely against it and are scared of it right now. 
Sarah? I just wanted to give Dr. Carroll a chance to respond to, is IU taking responsibility for students and how this is affecting the community of outside of the campus? Um, well, yes. I, first of all, I'd argue that uh, our goal all along has been to be to make it safer to be part of the IU community than not to be, um, in the sense that um, students are, uh, I, mean, I think even Maggie said, like Bloomington is her home. Um, we have like 87,000 students, uh, I think, um, who are part of IU right now. And about 10,000, 12,000 of them live in dorms. Another 2,400, 3,000 live in fraternity houses. And everyone else is not. Um, they are part of off-campus. They are in our communities. They live in Indiana. They are part of all of this. And online only or not online only, 70, 80,000 students live in, you know, are part of Indiana um, or would have come anyway um, because being part of in college is, is living in Bloomington. And so knowing that our goal was to create schemes um, to do a better job of symptomatic testing and caring for students, you know, medically when they get sick to, as Penny has said, invest significantly in contact tracing and isolation uh, to create large schemes for asymptomatic testing, which do not exist in the rest of Indiana um, or in the real, you know, the rest of the world, um, building up labs on campus. So eventually we hope to by October be able to do something on the order of 15,000 tests a day, which would be more tests than the rest of Indiana combined, um, because we want to make it as safe as possible. And that is our goal. Um, we are monitoring groups all over. As like I said before, we are testing students, faculty, and staff on and off campus at all of our campuses, and we're seeing a huge amount of success. Uh, many of our regionals, as I said before, are you know flirting with zero percent positivity, and as we know, that is not the rest of Indiana. Um, even our dorm population, as I said, has been about three uh, percent, and we would like that to be better. And as uh, dorms have risen above. Uh, you know, 2% or so. We've done significant universal testing of them as we've done with the Greek houses. Um, we moved them rapidly into Ashton uh, for quarantine or isolation where they are rigorously, you know, not permitted to leave um, because that, and some people may think that's unfair, but that is part of what we need to do uh, in order to make sure that we keep that safe. And we're even monitoring our off-campus populations to see to see where that is in case we needed to to sort of nimbly move in and say these are not. For yeah. the most part, it's being maintained pretty low. Um, we do have some populations where it is much higher. We are working as much as we can to limit that, but we cannot control them and tell them exactly what to do. And so giving advice um, and then working with the county is sort of our best effort. And uh, Dr. Carroll, just one more question. We've gotten um, several listener comments just wondering how students are being reprimanded or are punished if they are found to be violating the honor code. And particularly, we've gotten questions about that incident at Lake Monroe. So yeah. is the university taking action against... I mean, we're not a police state. <laughs> and so it's, uh, it's very hard. As much as people think like we can take significant action... Uh, there, you know, we try very hard to work with students and not go nuclear. Um, I think the one thing that would cause us incredible pause is if we found students were knowingly violating quarantine or isolation, because at that point, students are actively putting others at risk. Uh, if you're not hearing me get a little tense at that, um, I take that incredibly seriously because, you know, having a party when you shouldn't have a party I wish you didn't, but I get it. But knowingly violating quarantine or isolation, actively putting other people at risk when you know you are ill and infectious is a significant, not just infraction against the rules, but you know, violation of the social contract. And so I imagine if it is determined that that people, you know, in those pictures or who are, you know, hosting or going in and out or going to parties who are knowingly violating. Uh, isolation or quarantine, then then the university might might be much more strict about enforcement. We only have a couple minutes to go. I want to ask uh, Dr. Rasmalis a couple of sort of basic questions. I, I know um, Penny mentioned you know flu season is is coming up, so you know we had one question from somebody, and we've answered this before on the show, but I just want to do it one more time. Who asked if 
if the colder weather was going to tamp down the coronavirus? And I believe the answer is no, correct? No, I mean, <laughs> if, if anything, well, we found that the, the virus is not very is not seasonal like we expected it might be. The fact is it didn't disappear during the summer, during the warmer weather. And if anything, the colder weather uh, is uh, enhances transmission of a lot of respiratory viruses. So I don't, we're not going to see, we're not going to get any help that way. Um, it is critically important for people to get the influenza vaccine. And the question is why? Because we are all, as medical professionals, we're thinking, okay, the fall is going to start and we're going to have people coming in with cough, cold, influenza, and COVID. And we're going to be struggling with trying to figure out who's got what and what how what actions we need to take. So the fewer influenza cases that that confound us, the better off we will all be. And so that's the reason why it's very important to get um, you know vaccine. The last the, the another comment I wanted to make is you know really the energy and the planning on the part of students and IU and the public health folks is extraordinary. I mean, this has never really happened before. We The resources and what we put together is really amazing to me to see it all come together. The problem is we just have a very tough adversary in this COVID. It's very transmissible and it's very serious, particularly for high risk individuals. So we just have to persist. We have to continue working. We have to focus and we have to do just a little bit better than we've been doing so far. All right, we're out of time. I want to thank you again, Dr. Tom Rasmalis, for being with us today, as well as Penny Cottle from the Monroe County Health Department, Dr. Aaron Carroll, Director of Surveillance and Mitigation for the COVID-19 pandemic at IU. And thanks for joining us, Maggie Mulligan, an IU student who is in quarantine right now at Gamma Phi Beta Sorority. I want to thank uh, our producers, Benta Boutier and John Bailey, engineers Mike, Matt Stonecipher and Mike Pashkash, Sarah Whitmire, my co-host, and I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Production support comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, this September hosting the virtual 21st running of Hoosiers Outrun Cancer, a 5K run-slash-walk supporting those in the community facing a cancer diagnosis. Registration and more at hoosiersoutruncancer.org.